Part two of Chapter ten of Equanimitas by Sir William Osler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part two, Chapter ten, British Medicine in Greater Britain. The old universities and the colleges, once the chief offenders, have been emancipated and remain no longer, as Gibbon found them, steeped in port and prejudice. The value of authority, per se, has lessened enormously, and we of Greater Britain have perhaps suffered as the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Practice loves authority, as announced in The General and Perpetual Voice of Men. Science must ever hold with Epicharmus, that a judicious distrust and wise scepticism are the sinews of the understanding. And yet the very foundations of belief, in almost everything relating to our art, rest upon authority. The practitioner cannot always be the judge. The responsibility must often rest with the teachers and investigators, who can only learn in the lessons of history the terrible significance of the word. The fetters of a thousand years in the treatment of fever were shattered by Sydenham, shattered only to be riveted anew. How hard was the battle in this century against the entrenched and stubborn foe! Listen to the eloquent pleadings of Stokes, pleading as did Sydenham against authority and against the bleedings, the purgings and sweatings of fifty years ago. Though his hair be grey, and his authority high, he is but a child in knowledge, and his reputation an error. On a level with a child, so far as correct appreciation of the great truths of medicine is concerned, he is very different in other respects. His powers of doing mischief are greater. He is far more dangerous. Oh, that men would stoop to learn, or at least cease to destroy. The potency of human authority among the powers that be was never better drawn than by the judicious Hooker in his section on this subject. And this not only with the simpler sort, but the learneder and wiser we are, the more such arguments in some cases prevail with us. The reason why the simpler sort are moved with authority is the conscience of their own ignorance whereby it cometh to pass that having learned men in admiration they rather fear to dislike them than know wherefore they should allow and follow their judgments contrariwise with them that are skilful authority is much more strong and forcible because they only are able to discern how just cause there is why to some men's authority so much should be attributed for which cause the name of Hippocrates, no doubt, were more effectual to persuade even such men as Galen himself than to move a silly empiric. Sydenham was called a man of many doubts, and therein lay the secret of his great strength. Passing now to the main question of the development of this British medicine in Greater Britain, I must at once acknowledge the impossibility of doing justice to it. I can only indicate a few points of importance, 
and I must confine my remarks chiefly to the American part of Greater Britain. We may recognize three distinct periods corresponding to three distinct waves of influence, the first from the early immigration to about 1820, the second from about 1820 to 1860, and the third from about 1860 to the present time. The colonial settlements were contemporaneous with the revival of medicine in England. Fellow students of Harvey at Cambridge might have sailed in the Mayflower and the Arbella. The more carefully planned expeditions usually enlisted the services of a well-trained physician, and the early records, particularly of the New England colonies, contain many interesting references to these college-bred men. Giles Furman, who settled in Boston in 1632, a Cambridge man, seems to have been the first to give instruction in medicine in the New World. The Parsons of that day had often a smattering of physic, and illustrated what Cotton Mather called an angelic conjunction. He says, Ever since the days of Luke, the evangelist, skill in physic, has been frequently professed and practiced by persons whose more declared business was the study of divinity. Furman himself, finding physic but a mean help, took orders. These English physicians in the New England colonies were scholarly, able men. Roger Chillingworth, in Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, has depicted them in a sketch of his own life. Made up of earnest, studious, thoughtful, quiet years, bestowed faithfully for the increase of knowledge, faithfully too for the advancement of human welfare, men, thoughtful for others, caring little for themselves, kind, just, true, and of constant if not warm affections. A singularly truthful picture of the old colonial physician. Until the establishment of medical schools, University of Pennsylvania, 1763, King's College, afterwards Columbia, 1767, Harvard, 1782, the supply of physicians for the colonies came from Great Britain, supplemented by men trained under the old apprentice system, and of colonists who went to Edinburgh, Leyden, and London for their medical education. This latter group had a most powerful effect in moulding professional life in the pre-revolutionary period. They were men who had enjoyed not alone the instruction but often the intimate friendship of the great English and European physicians. Morgan, Rush, Shippen, Bard, Wistar, Hossack, and others had received an education comprising all that was best in the period, and had acquired the added culture which can only come from travel and wide acquaintance with the world. Morgan, the founder of the medical school of the University of Pennsylvania, was away seven years, and before returning had taken his seat as a corresponding member of the French Academy of Surgery, besides having been elected a Fellow of the Royal Society. The War of Independence interrupted temporarily the stream of students, but not the friendship which existed between Cullen and Fothergill and their old pupils in America. 
the correspondence of these two warm friends of the colonies testifies to the strong professional intimacy which existed at the time between the leaders of the profession in the old and new worlds but neither borhave cullen nor fothergill stamped colonial medicine as did the great scotsman john hunter long weary centuries separated harvey from galen not a century lapsed from the death of the great physiologist to the advent of the man in whose phenomenal personality may be seen all the distinctive traits of modern medicine and the range of whose mighty intellect has had few if any equals since aristotle hunter's influence on the profession of this continent so deep and enduring was exerted in three ways in the first place his career as an army surgeon and his writings on subjects of special interest to military men carried his work and ways into innumerable campaigns in the long french wars and in the war of independence hunter's works were reprinted in america as early as seventeen ninety one and seventeen ninety three in the second place hunter had a number of most distinguished students from the colonies among whom were two who became teachers of wide reputation william shippen the first professor of anatomy in the university of pennsylvania lived with hunter on terms of the greatest intimacy he brought back his methods of teaching and some measure of his spirit with the exception of hewson and home hunter had no more distinguished pupil than philip singh physic who was his house surgeon at st george's hospital and his devoted friend for more than a generation physic had no surgical compere in america and enjoyed a reputation equalled by no one save rush he taught hunterian methods in the largest medical school in the country and the work of his nephew dorsey on surgery is very largely hunter modified by physic but in a third and much more potent way the great master influenced the profession of this continent hunter was a naturalist to whom pathological processes were only a small part of a stupendous whole governed by law which however could never be understood until the facts had been accumulated tabulated and systematized by his example by his prodigious industry and by his suggestive experiments he led men again into the old paths of aristotle galen and harvey he made all thinking physicians naturalists and he lent a dignity to the study of organic life and re-established a close union between medicine and the natural sciences both in britain and greater britain he laid the foundation of the great collections and museums particularly those connected with the medical schools the wistar horner and the warren museums originated with men who had been greatly influenced by hunter he was moreover the intellectual father of that interesting group of men on this side of the atlantic who while practicing as physicians devoted much time and labor to the study of natural history in the latter part of the last century and during the first thirty years of this 
the successful practitioner was very often a naturalist i wish that time permitted me to do justice to the long list of men who have been devoted naturalists and who have made contributions of great value benjamin smith barton david hossack jacob bigelow richard harlan john d godman samuel george morton john collins warren samuel l mitchell j eichen meigs and many others have left the records of their industry in their valuable works and in the transactions of the various societies and academies in canada many of our best naturalists have been physicians and collections in this city testify to the industry of holmes and mcauliffe i was regretting the humanities a few minutes ago and now i have to mourn the almost complete severance of medicine from the old natural history to a man the most delightful recollections of whose student life are the saturdays spent with a preceptor who had a hunterian appetite for specimens anything from a trilobite to an acorus to such a one across the present brilliant outlook comes the shadow of the thought that the conditions of progress will make impossible again such careers as those of william kitchen parker and william carmichael mackintosh until about eighteen twenty the english profession of this continent knew little else than british medicine after this date in the united states the ties of professional union with the old country became relaxed owing in great part to the increase in the number of home schools and in part to the development of american literature to eighteen twenty one hundred and fourteen native medical books of all kinds had been issued from the press and one hundred and thirty one reprints and translations the former english the latter few in number and almost exclusively french turning for a few minutes to the condition of the profession in canada during this period i regret that i cannot speak of the many interesting questions relating to the french colonies with the earliest settlers physicians had come and among the jesuits in their devoted missions there are records of domnes laymen attached to the service who were members of the profession one of these rene gopil suffered martyrdom at the hands of the iroquois between the fall of quebec in seventeen fifty nine and eighteen twenty the english population had increased by the settlement of upper canada chiefly by united empire loyalists from the united states and after the war of eighteen twelve by settlers from the old country the physicians in the sparsely settled districts were either young men who sought their fortunes in the new colony or were army surgeons who had remained after the revolutionary war or the war of eighteen twelve the military element gave for some years a very distinctive stamp to the profession these surgeons were men of energy and ability who had seen much service and were accustomed to order discipline and regulations sabine in his american loyalists 
refers to the Tory proclivities of the doctors, but says that they were not so much disturbed as the lawyers and clergymen. Still, a good many of them left their homes for conscience' sake, and Caniff, in his medical profession in Upper Canada, gives a list of those known to have been among the United Empire Loyalists. The character of the men who controlled the profession of the new colony is well shown by the proceedings of the medical board, which was organized in 1819. Doctors Macaulay and Widmer, both army surgeons, were the chief members, the latter, who has well been termed the father of the profession in Upper Canada, a man of the very highest character, did more than anyone else to promote the progress of the profession, and throughout his long career his efforts were always directed in the proper channels. In looking through Caniff's most valuable work, one is much impressed by the sterling worth and mettle of these old army surgeons, who in the early days formed the larger part of the profession. The minutes of the medical board indicate with what military discipline the candidates were examined, and the percentage of rejections has probably never been higher in the history of the province than it was in the first twenty years of the existence of the board. One picture on the canvas of those early days lingers in the memory, illustrating all the most attractive features of a race which has done much to make this country what it is today. Widmer was the type of the dignified old army surgeon, scrupulously punctilious and in every detail regardful of the proprieties of life. Tiger Dunlop may be taken as the very incarnation of that restless, roving spirit which has driven the Scotch broadcast upon the world. After fighting with the Connaught Rangers in the War of 1812, campaigning in India, clearing the Sagore of tigers, hence his subriquet, Tiger, lecturing on medical jurisprudence in Edinburgh, writing for Blackwood, editing the British Press and the Telescope, introducing Beck's medical jurisprudence to English readers, and figuring as director and promoter of various companies, this extraordinary character appears in the young colony as Warden of the Black Forest. In the employ of the Canada Company, his life in the backwoods at Gairbraid, his Noctes Ambloissants Canadenses, his famous Twelve Apostles, as he called his mahogany liquor stand, each bottle a full quart, his active political life, his remarkable household, his many eccentricities, are they not all portrayed to the life in the recently issued in the days of the Canada Company? Turning now to the second period, we may remark in passing that the 19th century did not open very auspiciously for British medicine. Hunter had left no successor, and powerful as had been his influence, it was too weak to stem the tide of abstract speculation, with which Cullen, Brown, and others flooded the profession no more sterile period exists than the early decades of this century. Willen, a great naturalist in skin diseases, with a few others 
saved it from utter oblivion the methods of hippocrates of sydenham and of hunter had not yet been made available in everyday work the awakening came in france and such an awakening it can be compared with nothing but the renaissance in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries which gave us vesalius and harvey citizen bichat and Broussals led the way but Laennec really created clinical medicine as we know it today. The discovery of auscultation was only an incident, a vast moment, it is true, in a systematic study of the correlation of symptoms with anatomical changes. Louis, Andral, and Chomel extended the reputation of the French school, which was maintained to the full until the sixth decade, when the brilliant Trousseau ended for a time a long line of Paris teachers, whose audience had been worldwide. The revival of medicine in Great Britain was directly due to the French. Bright and Addison, Graves and Stokes, Forbes and Marshall Hall, Latham and Bennett, were profoundly affected by the new movement. In the United States, Anglican influence did not wane until after 1820. Translations of the works of Bichat appeared as early as 1802, and there were reprints in subsequent years. But it was not until 1823 that the first translation, a reprint of Forbes' edition, of Laennec was issued. Brossois' works became very popular in translations after 1830 and in the journals from this time on the change of allegiance became very evident but men rather than books diverted the trend of professional thought after eighteen twenty five american students no longer went to edinburgh and london but to paris and we can say that between eighteen thirty and eighteen sixty every teacher and writer of note passed under the gaelic yoke the translations of Louise's work and the extraordinary success of his American pupils, a band of the ablest young men the country had ever seen, added force to the movement. And yet this was a period in which American medical literature was made up largely of pirated English books, and the systems, encyclopedias, and libraries, chiefly reprints, testify to the zeal of the publishers. Stokes, Graves, Watson, Todd, Bennett, and Williams furnished Anglican pap to the sucklings, as well as strong meat to the fully grown. In spite of the powerful French influence, the textbooks of the schools were almost exclusively English. In Canada, the period from 1820 to 1860 saw the establishment of the English universities and medical schools. In Montreal, the agencies at work were wholly Scotch. The McGill Medical School was organized by Scotchmen, and, from its inception, has followed closely Edinburgh methods. The Paris influence, less personal, was exerted chiefly through English and Scotch channels. The Upper Canada schools were organized by men with English affiliations, and the traditions of Guy's, St. Bartholomew's, St. Thomas's, St. George's, 
and of the London Hospital, rather than those of Edinburgh, have prevailed in Toronto and Kingston. The local French influence on British medicine in Canada has been very slight. In the early decades of the century, when the cities were small and the intercourse between the French and English somewhat closer, the reciprocal action was more marked. At that period, English methods became somewhat the vogue among the French. Several very prominent French Canadians were Edinburgh graduates. Attempts were made in the medical journals to have communications in both languages, but the fusion of the two sections of the profession was no more feasible than the fusion of the two nationalities, and the development has progressed along separate lines. The third period dates from about 1860, when the influence of German medicine began to be felt. The rise of the Vienna School was for a long time the only visible result in Germany of the French Renaissance. Skoda, the German Leineck, and Rokitansky, the German Morgagni, influenced English and American thought between 1840 and 1860. But it was not until after the last date that Teutonic medicine began to be felt as a vitalizing power, chiefly through the energy of Virchow. After the translation of the Cellular Pathology by Chance, 1860, the way lay clear and open to every young student who desired inspiration. There had been great men in Berlin before Virchow, but he made the town on the spree a mecca for the faithful of all lands. From this period we can date the rise of German influence on the profession of this continent. It came partly through the study of pathological histology, under the stimulus given by Virchow, and partly through the development of the specialties, particularly diseases of the eye, of the skin, and of the larynx. The singularly attractive courses of Hebra, the organization, on a large scale in Vienna, of a system of graduate teaching designed especially for foreigners, and the remarkable expansion of the German laboratories, combined to divert the stream of students from France. The change of allegiance was a deserved tribute to the splendid organization of the German universities, to the untiring zeal and energy of their professors, to their single-minded devotion to science for its own sake. End of Part 2 Chapter 10 Recording by Luke Sartor, Griffith, New South Wales